1: touch on this a little bit because there was a uh, a CPC ad an attack ad if you will a, an ad that really used Trudeau's prime minister Justin Trudeau's words against him in a big way we've actually titled the clip Trudeau versus Trudeau because basically what happened on on Monday prime minister Trudeau was uh, was having a, a press availability he was announcing uh, federal support for a housing project in in Hamilton Ontario and and he made a couple of comments that indicated a marked change in the federal government's rhetoric on the Canadian housing affordability crisis. He basically made quite the pivot. He said, quote, I'll be blunt, housing isn't a primary federal responsibility. Well, Prime Minister Trudeau basically, originally back in 2015, ran on housing being more affordable, being one of his primary pledges to Canadians. So. The Conservative Party of Canada has, has threaded together three sound bites of Trudeau. Have a listen. Here, here, here's Trudeau versus Trudeau, that, that CPC ad. Have a listen to this.
2: A Liberal government will prioritize significant new investment in affordable housing. Far too long, a first home has been out of reach for far too many. It's time to change that. And I'll be blunt as well. Housing isn't a primary federal responsibility.
1: So Trudeau versus Trudeau leaves a lot of us wondering, well, if it's not the federal government, if it's not for the federal government to fix the Canadian housing crisis, and certainly here in B.C. it is spiking even higher than some areas across the country, where does it fall? Is it, is it a provincial matter then? Is it a municipal matter? Most who will discuss this will say the, the federal government needs to be active in housing people, particularly when we are opening the doors to more people to move here. Uh, that is a federal decision. There's a lot to unpack in this and, and obviously it impacts everybody, whether you're a homeowner or a renter. Uh, development is not a dirty word Every type of housing is actually development, so we need to get that out of the way as well. Somebody who is an urban planner and former developer is joining us on the line to talk this through with me, Arnie Wise. We follow each other on Twitter. Here we are talking on the radio. Uh, nice to get a chance to chat with you.
2: Good morning. Good morning.
1: So when you hear Trudeau versus Trudeau here, and you and 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 the shift from between 2015, where solving the housing affordability issues that Canadians were facing then, which has now become a crisis, the shift to, well, it's not really a, a priority for the federal government here. How, how does that land with you? It, it's
2: a bit disingenuous for the prime minister of Canada to say that housing isn't a federal responsibility. I mean, we have a housing crisis, a housing affordability crisis in Canada. It's one of the main issues on everyone's mind uh, and the facts are Canada has a housing minister. Uh, they just appointed the rising Liberal star, Sean Fraser, to be housing minister, very high profile. Uh, the federal government has uh, Crown Corporation, CMHC, Canada Mortgage and Housing. If you look up on their website, CMHC, it says, the CMHC exists for a single reason, to make housing affordable for everyone in Canada. So I don't see how the federal government can say that they don't have a responsibility.
1: Arnie, wasn't there a time, as, let's bring it to Metro Vancouver, let's, let's dial it right down to the lower mainland, a place yeah. where we, yeah. uh, in my lifetime anyway, as a born and raised Vancouverite. Everybody is, oh, wait for the bubbles, going to burst, it's going to burst. Okay, so I've mm-hmm. lived here for 55 years. Uh, no bursting, uh, just a lot of demand and lack of supply. But there was a time when I was a, a, a young person, a, t- a teen in my 20s and what have you, where I could find one of those simple, little, inexpensively built government-issue, rather, uh, uh, properties that I could rent. You know, And yeah. then it, yeah. it feels like those have gone the way of the dodo bird. There was a time when the federal <laughs> government did build housing, did they not?
2: Yes. Um, you know, the uh, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, there was a housing crisis for affordability in the 70s when he was prime minister. And the federal government under Trudeau, I forget who the, the, the finance minister was, they introduced a program called MERC, Multiple Unit Residential Building Program, which used the federal powers of fiscal authority. That means they set income taxes and they allowed individuals to deduct from their income taxes investments to finance the building of affordable housing. So all of the all of the rental, the older affordable rental housing that you see in Vancouver and in most Canadian cities, like in, in Kitsilano or Fairview or Mount Pleasant, all those older four-story walk-ups, they were all yeah. built under this MERB program to build affordable housing. So the federal government did get involved very in a significant way in the 70s. Uh, similarly, we we have a minister, we had a minister named Ron Basford, uh, a federal minister uh, from BC who, who funded um, the um, South Falls Creek, False Creek South um, housing development made up of co-ops and non-profit housing and market housing so that uh, the government has been involved in housing for a long long time so for the government to say now they don't get involved is is kind of um, not really a, a wonderful political statement to come out with
1: no, and and you mentioned down at, at Falls Creek and down near Granville Island. There's a lot of city lease land there that had some affordability pieces as well. And certainly, exactly what I was referencing in Kitsilano and and Fairview are the type of four story walkups that uh, that I was able to secure exactly. as as a young person. You know that I uh, think about it now, twenty fifty seven West Second Avenue, my first ever studio yeah. apartment in Kitsilano back in you know nineteen. 19- 89 80, 88 was 400 dollars for a 400 square foot studio apartment that backed onto an alley it was you know bamboo flooring and a kitchen the size of a shoe box and a teeny tiny bathroom that was avocado green and you could barely turn around in it you, you know that type of place barely exists now but there when we look at the city lease land plus the the federal government you know tax break development pieces that are not Built to oh well we're going to sell these million dollar top floors and then have these smaller bits over here that we're going to you know crumb to the people that uh, you know middle class and 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 what have you how do we get all layers and all levels of government working together because this crisis is the hot potato and the political the political wedge issue that it, it is being used at as is is failing people
2: yes I think well I mean there are. There are fixes that are doable by each level of government. For example, okay. there's um, an article by CIBC's Deputy Chief Economist, Benjamin Tal, who says that the, the federal government should drop the HST for all rental constructions that are affordable. That would be an immediate step that would allow would, would incentivize builders to build rental housing. As it stands now, it doesn't make right. sense for build, to build rental housing. The, the numbers don't work. So you have to incentivize the private sector to build affordable housing, affordable rental housing. So dropping the HST would be a way to leverage federal investment in affordable housing. Uh, Sean Fraser, in his first press conference, said that that's what the feds want to do. They want to leverage their investments so that it has the greatest impact. Well, there's one example of what the federal government can do. Um, do. Yeah. Um, the municipality could similarly drop all the development charges, which are quite significant uh, on affordable rental construction. Um, now there are estimates that the first step dropping the HST would drop about sixty thousand dollars from the unit cost of, a, of each unit. Similarly, dropping huh. the the uh, development charges that the municipality imposes on a developer would also cut about sixty thousand in Toronto. And here it's a much higher; It would be about ninety thousand cut here. Right. So that you know that would amount to one hundred and twenty thousand dollar less construction cost. Less project cost for building rental housing and of course you and Ernie,
1: to- the hope the hope would be that yeah. that would then be passed along to the consumer as opposed to been, be taken as profit is that what you're suggesting here or an incentive Absolutely. for okay
2: it would be both. It would be an incentive for the developer to build rental housing, but it would also have to be tied together with a housing agreement that you have to provide 50 percent of the housing that is affordable. For the median incomes of the local community at at the moment, the median income in Vancouver is eighty two thousand household income is eighty two thousand dollars. Well, the rents today, a one bedroom apartment average rent in Vancouver is twenty nine eighty seven a month.
1: Jodie Vanson for Mike Smith and we are talking about the housing crisis and how the prime minister has flip-flopped on it being a priority for our federal government uh, Trudeau on Monday at a, at a press availability actually helping out with housing in Hamilton Ontario said it wasn't a huge priority for the federal government it was more um, he was referencing that it was uh, provincial and municipal governments who are in charge of, of land use planning and zoning and permitting and and as such, are are key in cause co- in uh, fixing or helping solve our affordability uh, crisis when it comes to housing. We're with Arnie Wise, urban planner and former developer. And Arnie, before the break, I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that the average rent for a one bedroom being almost three thousand dollars a month. Nobody can yeah. afford that. We've we've spoken to people who are getting rent evicted because uh, yeah. landlords, rightfully so, want to make. Um, their money off of their properties while they're paying this, you know, sky high taxes and, and what have you, but short-term rentals come into play as well. Um, when, when there is such a crunch on things and permitting being as a former developer, you know, what it's like to navigate city hall. It can be untenable. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, you know, the, the city hall, particularly Vancouver city hall, you talk to any developer, it's a nightmare. Uh, the 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 rules and regulations they just grind down any developer or builder even for a bat you know a, a lane away house or any kind of development it takes yeah year a year and a half years for a rezoning to get a permit so that no matter what policies are instituted for oh yeah let's build more housing supply let's do this let's do this unless the unless there's some Mechanism within City Hall to make that happen. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, the, the recent um, multiplex, there was just an article in the paper today about these allowing uh, more density in single-family areas. Fine. Yes. It's probably a great idea. But if it takes a year and a half or two years to get a permit to do it, only the pros will do it. Nobody's going to bother. So it just won't happen unless...
1: And they'll make yeah. their money back th- that they spent while waiting, right? That's a part of it as well. You got, it's got to be profitable. Developments yes. are for profit. And if yeah, somebody that- is going to have to pay the property taxes and the, and, and the fees, we, remember that uh, we were on Twitter looking at the, the one developer who basically laid out the cost and wait time associated with just doing some simple changes to his property. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Arnie, thank you for your time today. As always, we love to read you. I understand you're working on a new uh, article. Give me a 30 second on that.
2: Well, it's basically what we've been talking about, that there are levers that the all levels of government can use if they want to. I mean, uh, the municipality we've talked about, uh, any shortfall from municipal funds can be um, rebated by the provincial government. The provincial government yeah. takes responsibility for housing, so make make the money work properly. So the federal government can do things, the provincial government can do things, and the municipalities can do things. They have the tools to make it happen, but it, it needs some somebody who's like a housing czar
1: to make it happen. Yeah, we need a, we need collaboration here. Jody Vance with you. Time to have a discussion that's a difficult one to have. It might be triggering for some and if you find yourself um, familiar with this subject matter, we're going to give you some resources and ways to reach out for help. We're going to talk about intimate partner violence. Something. It's a, a relatively new way of saying what many would have in the past referred to as domestic violence. It is now called intimate partner violence or gender-based violence. And sadly, there has been an enormous spike in such violence uh, in recent years, and certainly the pandemic exacerbated that. Going to shine some light on it here and get some advice about it, uh, what it means, what it's like, and the shame that is associated with it for so many who feel that they absolutely just cannot get out of it. helping people do just that is our guest executive director of battered women's support services. Angela Marie McDougall is on the line. Thank you for doing this, Angela.
0: Good morning, Jody. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you
1: today. Such a tough conversation to have. And I, I, I erroneously and and Corey Latondra, our producer, if you wouldn't mind getting me the phone number that I can reiterate over the course of the next few minutes if people are feeling triggered if feeling they need to reach out to somebody i'd like i'd like to have that number at my fingertips. I was so busy sort of entrenching myself in what it means what 's the issue what's the law? How do we identify it where Where are the parameters and boundaries mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. intimate partner violence it's so complex, Angela. Uh, can you just walk us through some Mm -hmm. of the one-on-one of this, like people who are sitting right now going, well, I'm not really, I'm not really suffering this knowing somewhere in their, in their soul that they actually are. Um, What, what do we need to know?
0: So I guess the the first thing is that, uh, and and I'm glad that you mentioned the part about gender-based violence as being an umbrella term that can describe a number of, of uh, experiences of violence that can happen with an intimate partner, family member, uh, or a stranger. And, uh, well, family member, an intimate partner, uh, an employer, um, uh, you know, someone that is, uh, you know, a a neighbor, uh, but then also uh, a stranger. And intimate partner violence is uh, a number of behaviors. And we always like to say this, and I'm glad that you mentioned this at the top, um, some, so many of us would say, if I was ever hit in a relationship, I would leave. And, yeah. and what you mentioned was that how complex it is. And, and what we know is that uh, if a partner violence, a violence in a relationship, we can have an extraordinary number of tactics of power and control, and nobody's been hit. And we, the, we, an abusive relationship can be abusive and nobody's been hit. And that is uh, why often we have to think about how we draw the line when we're talking about violence. And for us uh, at BWSS, we are supporting um, uh, women and and gender diverse people who are experiencing a tactical power and control, including things like using isolation, emotional abuse, uh, um, intimidation, coercion and threats, financial abuse. Uh, children, pets, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, kind of a, a, a matrix of of behaviors that then uh, are designed with a very specific purpose, and that is to maintain power over and control of.
1: And I want to put for... out the crisis line, if I may, Angela, just for if grab yeah. a pencil, if you're listening right now, and you're thinking, I need to learn more about this, I, I I just want to make sure that that we put these numbers out here. So the crisis line for BWSS, Battered Women's Support Services, is one i am going to say it again slowly. one one eight six eight and a couple of things just to recap what you were saying there this could be Mm -hmm. within a marriage common law dating regardless of gender or sexual orientation of the partners it can happen anytime Mm -hmm. during a relationship even after a relationship has ended whether or not the partners live together or even sexually intimate with one another like you mentioned a neighbor if somebody is making you feel unsafe safe this is this is an example uh, of this brand of abuse. And it's physical, it's criminal harassment, it's sexual, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's financial, it's spiritual, it's reproductive coercion in some areas, mm-hmm. control, and and technology uh, can come into play as well. You even mentioned pets, like using children or pets as a tool to control uh, mm-hmm. in, in partners, in relationships. So what are we doing if we, if we find ourselves like, okay, uh, I've never been hit, but I'm certainly checking a number of those boxes. Uh, Angela, as the Executive Director of Battered, Battered Women's Support Services, what is the first step toward protecting oneself?
0: Well, safety is first and foremost. And for many, um, many that are experiencing abuse in relationships, we know that uh, there are lethality factors. Um, unfortunately, Jody, there has been an increase in, in the killings uh, of, of women in intimate partner or who have left intimate partner relationships in, all around the world, but certainly in, here in Canada. The uh, Canadian Observatory on Semicide, who tracks the killings of, of women and gender diverse people, has noted that since the pandemic, which we knew and we saw that there was Uh, an increase, a spike in reports of violence, we also have had really unfortunately a regression. uh, Whatever gains that we thought we had made around um, addressing uh, killings uh, has has spiked and has continued to remain high. We've had uh, significantly high numbers of killings. And so lethality is another factor. And so what we always want people to do is to take into consideration safety and uh safety planning is part of a process of, of, an, of you know, making a, an, an exit. Uh, uh, many times, the, and the stats show us that when somebody is killed, it's usually after they have disclosed that they're leaving or are in the process of leaving or have left and within that first year. And so a safety plan involves identifying action steps to, uh, to increase safety and to prepare in advance for the possibility of future violence. This is not to hold someone responsible for their own, uh, for violence that's experienced. It's it's about, uh, you know, making a plan. And, and that also then involves others, you know, taking the risk to talk to, to others. And many survivors will have, talk, have spoken maybe with family and friends. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes family and friends are, um, you, know, you know, don't want to get involved or if they're, you know, if they've provided uh, information and then that the, the victim, the survivor hasn't used it right away, they may feel discouraged that they, you know, and there might be tension between that relationship. Uh, yeah. And so sometimes victims feel really isolated and that's why a crisis line, that's why a, a service that um, is designed to provide that support can be a really good resource to then be able to walk through a safety plan We have a number of them on our website that looks at um, how to be safe in a number of different circumstances, but ultimately it helps to talk to somebody. And that's the part where it's a big step to take because it takes a lot to, you know, to talk about what's happening in our relationships when it's, when we're having troubles.
1: Angela Marie McDougall is the Executive Director of Battered Women's Support Services. What is your website address? Just so we can put that out there as well. Yes,
0: it's bwss.org, bwbravowhiskysierrasierra.org, and that um, uh, on our website there is a number of different resources, including safety planning, but also you know what is abuse, how to access transition houses and other services in, in regions outside of Metro Vancouver. There's a listing of services all across the country, but also all across British Columbia. And there is a a number of other things about how to, how to heal, how to uh, identify red flags. uh, And, you know, and we're, we're available. Our crisis team and our support team is, uh, is available to offer support.
1: Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. And we're chatting with Angela Marie McDougall, executive director of battered women's support services. We're talking about the lack of government plans with regard to intimate partner violence and the rise in gender-based violence, and addressing that, Angela, let's talk through what the government mm-hmm. could be doing better if, if activated and, and motivated to do so. Given the given the fact that things have spiked as they have, mm-hmm. and and much of that to do with COVID nineteen, when everybody was told told to go home and stay home, and and the and the pressure and the tension within a home that perhaps a victim might have found some solace and safety in, in getting away from their intimate partner and suddenly was, was thrust into it 24-7 and the stresses associated with it. Uh, whatever those reasons, um, finding themselves in ever more danger, what, what should the government be doing to protect people?
0: Well, we've been working with the federal government uh, over a number of years now to develop a national action plan on gender-based violence, and that work has um, resulted in a an, a an action plan that was uh, endorsed by the provinces and the territories. Right now, the provinces and territories are in their own individual negotiations with the federal government for a provincial for their own provincial and territorial plans. And uh, you know, the British Columbia government is is in that process right now. And what happened? Uh, you know, you may recall Jody recently in Ontario, there were a number of municipalities that had uh, come out to reflect to reflect on the epidemic of intimate partner violence, and in light of some of some high profile killings that happened in Ontario, mm-hmm. and about a dozen municipalities uh, came out to uh, make declarations about the epidemic of, of g- gender based violence, but also intimate partner violence and uh and so we've in, in in municipalities in ontario so we've now embarked on urging municipalities to make their own uh plans uh to go a step further and in ontario it was a bit of uh, a bit more of um, you know it was a bit more sort of symbolic uh in bc we're hoping that we can have municipalities really take up the call as well and within their area of responsibility uh, that they would build in their own plans around uh, addressing gender-based violence because it is an epidemic uh, both here um, you know, and all across uh, the country. So we just wrote uh, 65 municipal governments um, to, that includes mayors and councillors uh, urging municipal governments to take immediate action on, on a, a municipal action plan. And so what we're hoping is that this national action plan that I mentioned that's in negotiation right now uh, with the provinces and territories Will then be met with provincial plans, and so that we can have a more fulsome, uh, you know, four to ten-year directed action on uh, services for supports, services and supports yeah. for survivors and their yeah. families. Legal responses around the legal system. Uh, the uh, uh, a number of we want to kind of build a bunch of action around prevention. And then also social, um, kind of the other surrounding factors that are contributing to uh, domestic and intimate partner and gender-based violence. So uh, we're hoping that we can uh, see all levels of government. And we have heard from a couple of municipalities that are going to take this forward to their next meetings, which uh, was really encouraging.
1: That is encouraging and hopeful. One of the things, as somebody who has suffered um, significant online harassment um, mm. and has seen it through the court system um, yeah. targeted by a man, and, and it took the better part of a decade, really, right. from, from when it began. It was seven, seven years, and I have the means to, to protect myself, I'm touching yeah. wood as I say that, um, but uh, was failed by the system. So, um, you know, swift and meaningful consequences to those who might do such things, and certainly those mm. who uh, would would be a part of, of, of um, intimate partner violence. But it was, my case was handled by the domestic violence and onli- online harassment slice of the Vancouver Police Department. So there are... Mm. There, there are laws around it and there are, there are people there mm-hmm. to enforce such laws and then things get bogged down in the system. Is there a plan to perhaps create a more swift and meaningful deterrent, you know, to not bog down our legal system further, but to actually have it be a deter- deterrent as to how this is reported and then actionable um, consequences for those who, who would, would hurt others?
0: Well, you've, we've, you've, this ventures into some, um, some challenging terrain for us. Uh, and thank you for, you know, what you've done in sharing your story and helping, um, and I know that it, you know, and, and also the impact for you. And, and I know that your story has been really vital and in, in inspiring so many others. So thank you for sharing your story. The, I'm sorry that you had to uh, struggle and had to fight so hard to get a, some justice. And what your experience, as you've mentioned, does illustrate what is a real challenge. And though our friends at the, uh, you know, the the domestic violence and criminal harassment unit at the Vancouver Police Department do a really good job, uh, Jody, unfortunately, what we see is often, um, despite the fact that Canada has some of the most. Uh, some of the the most kind of effective in word (laughs) policies and laws to address uh, intimate partner, criminal harassment, um, even even the killings, homicide. We don't have the enforcement for a number of different reasons. And that actually uh, happens at the police level and then throughout the criminal system. And so, but, and this is what we want to disrupt it's a big part of what we're, what we're doing is, uh, you know, wanting to ensure that police are following their own policies. Uh, And then of course, then the other end of it, we see that uh, if a case makes its way to um, the court system, then, you know, often we see uh, those, what we call intimacy discounts where um, the fact that if there's somebody that knows people know each other, if there's harm done, that the person that does harm does not get the kind of um, sentence perhaps or um, consequences that perhaps strangers might have uh, received.
1: I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm up against the clock here with the network. We could talk at length on this and, and I appreciate all of your time today. I'm going to reiterate the number again, one 687 1868 Battered women's support services, bwss.org. Angela, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, Jody. Thank you so much. Take
1: good care. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith and Tim French, that is a perfect musical drop. Lady Gaga is an example of an awesome ally when it comes to the LGBTQ2 community. And wanting to be an ally is something many of us share and some of us step in it. And I often will say, you know what? I do my best on pronouns. I'm going to make mistakes with them. Please allow me to make my mistakes and please feel free to correct me when I get them wrong. Wanting to be inclusive, wanting to understand that love is love and that in Pride, Pride Week, Pride Festival, really here in Vancouver Pride, um, it's important for us to engage, be aware and understand for those of us who are not part of the LGBTQ2S plus community. One of my go-to touchstones for decades, really, on the subject is my next guest. Connie Smudge is co-founder of the North Shore Pride Alliance, an extraordinary drag queen as well. He, her are your pronouns, correct, Connie? Welcome.
3: Well thank you salutations to you and all your listeners thanks for having us and that song was inspirational thank you and as for my pronouns you can call me anything but late for dinner that's what i say so (laughs) i'm like girl boy you know what i mean i'm just happy you're calling me
1: (laughs) that's right we love having you on because you are so open to allowing for me in particular my mistakes that i make i'm gonna make mistakes but i'm driven to be an ally one of the most um important pieces of of my human being is to not judge others and to allow others to live their lives as authentically as possible that doesn't make me perfect at being an ally what are some of the biggest mistakes people like me make we try hard but maybe too well, hard
3: when we step I in. don't want to other you Joe's like honestly like as long as we're attempting to be our best selves and have an open mind, we ask, you know what I mean? And allies are important. And we're all learning. I'm really old. I'm 53 years old. So even the pronouns are tough for me sometimes because someone might be presenting very femme, very female-ish, but they go by they-them. And I make a mistake from here and there, and it's not my intent. I think that's what we have to check in with, Jody. is we have to check in with our intent. You can feel somebody's energy. You can feel somebody's um, maybe even backstory. Sometimes I'm very empathic and I can feel if somebody is making a slight on purpose or if they're just, you know, mm. kind of screwing up a bit. It's all good. And, you know, living is learning. That's what we're doing. So um, I just want all of us to belong. That's
1: all. Truth. OK, so I've got a couple of questions here that I'm getting from people and literally getting from people. I'm not going to name names. Don't panic because I know you're listening.
2: I'm right I got here. a DM
1: that said no from somebody. <laughs> somebody who said, I don't want to post this on social media. It's a DM that I got because it'll be perceived as negative and it's not meant that way. It's just a question. Why is Pride Month in June and Pride Week in August? Well, I think
3: if you look around, if you Google Pride, I think every country, every city that happens to have the luxury of having pride, because there are some places in the world that they can't have pride, they're being arrested, they're being jailed, they're being tortured. So... Pride happens, if you look on the web, there's Pride happening year-round, because Pride is 365, but um, yes. the World Pride, because it started in um, New York City, uh, well, it started, anyway, long story short, 1969, Stonewall, we all probably already know about the uprising yes. and everything like that, Um I believe that uh, Pride in June is the World Pride, considered World Pride. So it's almost like um, just a month dedicated, sort of worldwide for that. So, but every every city has their different, you know, depending on weather and you know, not to be that practical, but (laughs) I mean, you got to be kind
1: of practical, yes, indeed. We do have.
3: if, if I were practical and if I had my druthers, I would have a pride sort of February, March because this August <laughs> heat it's a wave little wearing warm. bulletproof polyester.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And three Sunday, inches of makeup. And, you know, my wig, it kind of acts like a... It's beautiful, though. I mean, you wear it well, my friend. You wear it well. Sunday, August 6th, 2023 is the Pride Parade. If we're going to the Pride Parade, um, you know, it is incredibly inclusive, uh, wanting to be a part of it. Um, and and yet, because it is still rather a protest in in the sense that there are still very vocal people wanting to say, you know, all the reasons why it shouldn't be allowed. I mean, Connie, you and I did on Steel & Vance a huge segment that then garnered people, you know, basically screaming from the rooftops that you're a groomer. I loved your your reaction and your answer to those who would say that as a drag queen who who is um, very at the forefront of wanting to help children understand uh, how they might be feeling... And and the and in doing drag queen story time uh, and, and 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 representing I want you to tell the story of of seeing seeing a drag queen or seeing somebody in the LGBTQ two plus community for the first time as as a young boy who felt like he was not reflected anywhere.
3: Well, and you know, I'm a child of the '70s and the '80s, and you know, you talk about grooming, and this is my answer to that: is that I was totally groomed to be straight. Nothing against my parents, but that's what I, that's what the society sort of dictated, and I, so I was groomed to be straight. I ask you, Jody, how did that work out? Like everyone, <laughs> everyone's gonna, everyone's gonna find, hopefully, find their own tribe and find their own path. Do you know what I mean? And as yeah. for um, I did a, and I'm not name dropping right now, but I did a quick interview with uh, Ian Hennemansing. And the question posed was Are we moving forward? Are we being more inclusive? Or are we sort of regressing and getting more sort of tribal and people against you? And I said, You know what, Ian? I said, Both answers can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm feeling is when I go to talk to high schools and elementary schools, I believe people, kids, young adults, aren't falling in love with bits anymore. They're falling in love with or interested in actual people which is sort of the way if you look at nature, that's sort of the way it's gone for in time memoriam. So um, I believe that we're just waking up and we're sort of, and what's happening is the more of us, quote unquote us, that are sort of open-minded and even even if you don't like what I'm doing, just let me do it and just turn the channel. Don't look at it. But I believe that the more we are getting together like-minded people accepting and all that sort of thing is that that small minority is feeling that they have to get louder and louder, i.e. every Thursday, those individuals that are standing on the overpass causing a huge traffic jam, um, on mountain highway in North Vancouver. And, uh, I just had to go up and just counter protest. And, you know, we have to, I can't let the, the hate speech be the only voice out there. And I believe that everyone can do that, right?
1: I think therein lies the real ally piece, right? That doesn't happen just in Pride Week or Pride Month. It's when, you know, whenever you see somebody being intolerant and really being intolerant about the other person's life choices. Exactly. You know, if somebody's screaming at the radio right now that I'm I'm indoctrinating people by having a conversation with my friend Connie Smudge, you you should look within. There is there is. Well, it says you more know, about the intolerant me up, screaming. Can
3: I don't know how much time we have, yeah. but can I tell you a really oh, quick, me. quick story? So I'm quick. standing on the overpass and this gentleman walks up to me and he's got like sort of F Trudeau and upside down Canadian Maple Leafs and all this anti-vax and then that uh, drag queens are groomers and all this stuff. And he came over and says, can I have a, like, a quiet conversation with you? I said, I would love that. So I believe you have to meet people where you are, so where they are. So... Yeah. I was like, fine. So he started talking about the drag queen thing and, and he kept saying, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And I was like, okay. So then he's talking to me and then it goes into like his son had a a vaccine and had a heart attack, 38 years old. Da, da, da. I said, like, we're getting off topic. And then he started getting closer to me and trying to engage in conversation. And I finally said, okay, dude, I said, you keep saying, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. I've told you I don't want to talk to you. And you keep trying to engage me in conversation. And now you're standing really close to me. Are you sure you're not gay?
1: <laughs> oh, <it's laughs> he didn't like thing. it. He didn't
3: like it very much. He didn't like it very didn't much.
1: I not like it. I, just everybody just needs to take a minute. But just Take and that's minute.
3: why going can I just go really quickly, North Shore Pride Alliance, our theme, our sort of hashtag this year, you know, like live and let live. Our hashtag yep. is Love and Let Love. Because about that you know what I mean? You have to, the other, our big title is rise up because, you know, again, I'm a child of the eighties and I remember the AIDS crisis and act up and all that thing. And I'm kind of, I'm really happy to be speaking with you calmly and lovely right now. I'm really energetic and excited, but, um, It seems to me that you have to, the only way to build bridges is by crossing them. You have to be able to sit at the table and try your best. And sometimes you can't win people's hearts over. You can't do it. But I've been having this mantra in my head for like two years now, since all of this backlash and such, I believe, and it's a quote I heard, prejudice is just an emotional commitment to ignorance. Mm,
1: That's where we cap it off, Connie Smudge. Happy Pride to you, my friend. I invite
3: everyone down to the shipyards in North Vancouver, Friday night between 5 and 10. We've got like 30 acts. I'm going to be on stage sweating myself off. And I welcome you all. And happy Pride to everybody. Pride is 365, Jody. It's
1: 365, my friend. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Connie Smudge.
3: Time.